Inner chaos is part of so many lives. When we go through it, we often try to hide it on the outside. Now I'm okay. I'm all good. But inside, there's a struggle. Why do I feel this way? Am I broken? Am I the only one feeling like this? When people connected with Jesus, they would grow to trust Him, pull down the mask they wore. Well, this morning in this title subject of It's Okay Not To Be Okay, I've called the message this morning, A Severed Love, A Severed Love. And this is my way of describing a summary of what I'm aiming to talk about today. Of course, this is going to mean nothing to you right now, but we're going to build towards it. And uh, I'm trusting that God will open up your hearts and minds about what this word severed love means. The Bible talks to us about the civil war that's going on inside our heads. Did you know that there's a civil war going on inside your head? You yourself are a sovereign nation, okay? You have absolutely, uh, absolute um, sovereignty over your own life. You have the ability to make decisions for yourself. And out of those decisions, you will honour God or you won't honour God. It's as simple as that. The civil war I'm talking about is one that is within the boundary of this nation's, nation's um, complete... Sorry, I'll start again. It's within a, within a boundary that is a nation in itself. In America, there was a civil war that happened over a century ago, and that, um, that war divided the North and the South. This war that goes on inside your head and heart is separating good from evil, or a positive decision or a negative decision, or the will of God or the will of yourself. These are the challenges that we all face every day. We're challenged by the fact that this war is going on inside of us all the time. And uh, the thing that I want to tell you is that Romans talks about this in a way that absolutely pinpoints it for us and describes it to us in a way that we never thought could be described. Paul said, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, my, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Well, that's only half of it. <laughs> it's, uh, I should be able to get that. Anybody like to do that for a memory verse next week? <laughs> I'll, buy, I'll buy you a block of chocolate. What we're saying here is that the Apostle Paul agrees with our own experience. And that is, it's okay not to be okay. You see, it's a starting place. That's what not being okay is. And it's a common starting place for us. One of the things about the human condition that we all experience is that we have these internal wrestling matches going on all the time. And the internal wrestling match is telling us that 
um, we are condemned because of our negative thoughts, that we are condemned because of our negative actions. And yet the Lord says, I know where you're at, I know what you're thinking, and I want to meet you right there. But guess what? I love you enough to want to move you from there to a different place. And it doesn't matter whether we are old or young, whether we are of, a, of different, uh, sorry, different nationalities, or of different economic means. Every one of us has this battle going on inside of us. And Christians can be really um, awkward about this. When you have had this experience, and I'm sure some of you have, of when you go to a, a new home group, a new life group, that you've never met people before and maybe everybody's new, and what happens is you talk to each other and everything is fine. You do a Bible study and we're all very polite. you know. And then, then somebody turns up one week and they say, look, I've got to tell you, but my life's just turned upside down. I've had one hell of a week. You know, it might be family, it might be finances, it might be health, it might be work, it might be some broken friendships. Then all of a sudden, the depth of relationship within that small group goes to a whole new deep level because everybody goes in their own heart of hearts, oh, yeah, me too. I've had that. I'm not having it, I've had that, or I've got something similar. And all of a sudden, it becomes a safe place to talk about the challenges that you are facing. How many of you have had that experience? How many of you have sat around small groups for months just waiting for someone to have a tragedy just so that you could actually get to the reality of what our human existence is all about? Yeah, I'm sure some of you have. And unfortunately, sometimes it takes a tragedy to take us to that place where we genuinely reach out to one another and say, hey, me too, you're not okay, I'm not okay, but we're here to help because God affirms us in this place. What I wanna do now is introduce us to a man who pretty well had everything together. A man who is mentioned in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as somebody who um, was probably a well-to-do man who had a lot of influence within society. He was a, a young person. And we're going to meet this guy and learn a little bit more about what it is that he, he, was, um, he, was, he was concerned about with his own life. Here it goes. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. Well, here we have the beginning of an interaction between Jesus and a young guy that is going to just take us in all sorts of odd places. And it's going to engage the disciples as well because they are people who are still learning from Jesus just as we would expect them to be. But right from the outset, we get this young ruler. We're told in different gospels that he's rich and that he's young and that he is a ruler. But he opens up with a comment that Jesus seems to take offence with. It's like this. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, he's got the, the inherit part right because he's immediately stating a very profound theological fact. What must I do to inherit? Now, when you inherit, you receive something for free. You inherit because you're part of the family. And that's what happens in life, isn't it? People pass on and they leave their worldly goods to the next generation. And so he's talking here about inheriting eternal life. And it's a very important comment for him to make. But he, 
does in the fir- what he does in the first instance is not the comment that Jesus wants to hear. Because he says, good teacher, which you would think is a polite way of asking a question. But Jesus immediately seems to take offense with this, doesn't he? When he says, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. What's going on here, I think, is this culture of reciprocity. Culture of reciprocity. We do it all the time. So, you know, we look at somebody and we go, hey, Grant, you're looking really good today. And Grant will say, Craig, you're looking mighty fine yourself. See, that's reciprocity, okay? Man, you know, you're really good at doing that. Me, I'm good at it. You're really, really good. You're even better. And so cultures operate along these lines of, of uh, commonality, but common compliments. You know how it is. I mean, I see, uh, you know, women do it a lot more than men, I think. You go into a social occasion, you just look smashing tonight. Well, you look really good yourself, you know? And I'm thinking, I got nowhere to comment on this because any comment I make will be misinterpreted. So the men just learn the hard way, but they just back off that conversation and say, did you see the blues win the rugby last night? Yeah. You see? So, so that's how we work. But here is this, this, this comment which is requiring from Jesus a different response in this man's imagination. Good teacher and reciprocity would say, yes, fine, young, righteous man. What is it that you want? But Jesus drops straight in and says, I'm not having any of this stuff. We're not here to mess around with niceties. And so Jesus challenges him and says, no one is good except God. No one is good except God. And so what's happening now is the conversation just takes on a, a whole new angle. And he says, a certain ruler, oh, sorry, I've already passed that. I'm not doing too good this morning, am I with this? Um, Second line at the end, he says, you know the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honour your father and mother. Now, he asks the rich young ruler these questions, do you know these commandments? And so these commandments are part of the Ten Commandments. Now, here's the Ten Commandments, okay? And Jesus names just five of them. He says, you know these commandments. Honour your mother and father. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal and no lying. He says, you've honoured these commandments. What he's doing is he's setting them up here. Because this guy is going to admit that he knows these commandments and yes, I've kept them for all of my life. In fact, I've, I've kept them since I was a boy. And so he's quite pleased with himself, Really? Jesus names five commandments, which he can confidently say, yeah, I've kept them. But the problem with these five commandments is that kept on their own, as he, is asked, as he admitted to doing, are really the commandments that allow us to mix together socially in a civil society. Have you ever had somebody say to you, I met so-and-so the other day, they would make a great Christian? Have you heard that before? Yeah, it's a funny comment, isn't it? They would make a great Christian. What we're really saying is that they would keep five of these ten commandments. They would be the same as the rich young ruler. They would uh, honour their mother and father, not murder anybody this week, no adultery, do not steal and no lying. I think that person would make a lovely Christian. 
And often this is where our Christianity ends up. We end up in this place and space where our faith is all about how we get on with others and what it means for us to conduct ourselves and be known as of solid reputation in a civil society. The commandments that weren't mentioned by Jesus, in other words, he's implying that you don't keep these ones, were these, that you should have no other God, that you should have no graven images about you, don't use the Lord's name in vain, keeping the Sabbath, and coveting, that is, desiring that which you don't own. Every one of these commandments are about our relationship with God. You see, if you have no other gods, you're gods and gods alone. If you don't bow down to any other graven image, you don't have any idols in your life. If you don't blaspheme, you're honouring God's name. If you keep the Sabbath under the Old Testament law, which was required of you to keep, then you're um, you know, honouring God with your, with your time. And no coveting says that God is enough for me. And I don't have to spend my time desiring what other people have to give myself some value because my value is in whom God is and the way that he sees me. What Jesus is really saying here in a summary is this is what it means to be passionate. This is what it means to put me first. This is what it means to be a fanatic. And the problem with being a fanatic is that you're deemed to be crazy. Rick Warren did a post about this last week. Rick Warren's probably classed as the pastor to America. He certainly has been the pastor to past presidents in the United States, Saddleback Community Church. And he made this interesting comment. He said that, you can be fanatical about anything. You can have the colours of your sports team in your living room. Yeah. You can, you can click model aeroplanes. You can be a fanatic about food, be a foodie. Uh, you, can, you can be a train watcher, a train spotter. Don't know what's in with that, but it's a bit different. But as soon as you're fanatical about God, you've lost it. You're weird. You're strange. And so what Rick Warren was saying is that Jesus himself created a discipleship group that were fanatical about God. And Jesus is here trying to draw the distinction between a guy who was fanatical about his reputation before the religious community by, not, by honouring his mum and dad, by not lying, by not committing adultery, by not murdering, etc., etc., but Jesus says these other parts of the commandments are actually about you and God and God alone. And so this is where Jesus very, very quickly draws this distinction for this man who had plenty of money. And so let's listen to how the story unfolds. All these I have kept since I was a boy. He's naming that first five. He said, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. So Jesus uses this one challenge to help him identify the fact that, yes, you have been a very civilized human being, a very righteous God follower as far as human, humans are concerned, as far as people you worship with are concerned but by identifying the fact that his wealth was actually his idol. Jesus is saying, these other five things of these commands, you have not kept that 
because there's something here that gets in the way, and it's your wealth. You see, the challenge that we all face, of course, is that in any given time, God is going to put his finger upon us and name something in our lives that we might feel really uncomfortable about. Yeah, we go into the prayer closet or we're reading the scriptures or we're having a conversation and all of a sudden, boof, there's something shed abroad in your heart, a revelation, and you go, wow, I never knew that about myself. I didn't realise I had that, carried that attitude. I didn't realise I had that form of prejudice. I didn't realise I had unforgiveness. God wants us to know these things. He doesn't want to hide them from us because he knows anyway. It's not like we go back to prayer and go, oh, Lord, I'm so embarrassed. You know, We have just found out, haven't we, you and I, that I've got an attitude problem. Our Lord will say, uh, by the way, I knew it before you found out. Okay? And that's the nature of Scripture and the Spirit. Hebrews 4 tells us this. For the word, the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Now, there's, there's about a month's worth of preaching in one, one scripture there, isn't there? So it's, it's God's love. God's favour upon us when we have a conviction upon ourselves of what it is that we should and shouldn't be doing. This isn't God trying to beat up on us. He's just trying to say to us, look, I think there's something you need to know about yourself because as you press into me and you say publicly that you desire more of me, uh, this is what you need to work on. Here's a challenge. Here's an attitude. And by the way, rich young ruler, your problem is your money. Your problem is not that you've got money, but your problem is your money. It's now getting between you and me, me and God. And so this is the, the biggest challenge, is that Jesus is trying to separate religious affections from passion. There's a lot of people who can have religious affections. Oh, God is so nice. I'll be nice to him. He was nice to me. I like going to church. They're nice people. We have nice conversations. It's all so very nice. But passion, passion is crazy. Passion is a little bit crazy. Sometimes it's a big bit crazy. All you have to do is look at how other people are, are chasing down their passionate activities and you'll see what passion looks like. You know, there are 40,000 people up at Fongmata this week on the beach hop. They're passionate about cars. That's where the other 20% of our folks are today. So That's what passion looks like. Passion's a positive thing. It's a fantastic thing. It's something that we're created for, is absolute passion. And yet, are we allowed to tie that into God? Are we allowed to have absolute passion when it comes to uh, the things of the Lord? Absolutely. Of course we are. This isn't just about trying to impress the person who you're sitting next to in church. This is about you and God and what you do in that secret place, in that quiet place, and what it is that your fears are and your hopes are and your aspirations are. And so coming back to our story, Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. 
Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So the summary there is nothing is impossible with God. Being wealthy doesn't disqualify you from the kingdom. But what Jesus does say is that it seems impossible because how can a camel go through the eye of a needle? Well, it can't. But nothing is impossible with God. So what he's saying here is that you lay down your wealth, you lay down your life, and all of these things are put into a right perspective, put into a right order. So money is not evil. Scriptures tell us that it's the love of money that's evil. Money in itself is neutral. It's just a medium of exchange. In fact, I think some of the biggest challenges that I've ever had pastry is chatting with folks who said to me, you know, I have financial means to meet a lot of the problems in our community. But the problem being is that there are more problems than even my means are capable of fixing. And therefore, the, <clears throat> the challenge comes when people say, I have this amount of money and I could give it away, but I don't know where to give it to. For the vast majority of people within New Zealand, even though it's a wealthy nation, they're still living week by week, month by month. So that challenge of what do I do with my extra money is not actually a problem for most people. But it's a real problem for those who are burdened with wealth. And we can joke about it and say, oh Lord, let your burden fall on me. But I can guarantee within 12 months, as God massages your heart and changes your heart and attitude, you'll be knocking on my door saying, I think I understand what you were saying the other day. See, wealth creates a tension in a person's life that requires real maturity to work it through. And the worst part about wealth is the fact that it can drag us away from the things of God. See, wealth doesn't count for anything in the kingdom. God's more interested in your attitudes. And that's why we, um, we talk about money in the way that we do. But moving back to our conversation with the rich young ruler, there was somebody eavesdropping on this conversation, which now starts to uh, show itself. Because we're going to have a look at what the Apostle Peter says. And his, his response is very human. That's what I love about Peter. He's just so straight, so out there. And he says this. Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. Now, it's not a question. He's naming the obvious. <laughs> He's saying, hey, look, um, wealthy guys, they, it's a miracle. An eye, a needle, eye, camel, how does that work? I've left everything. What does that qualify me for? Does it show you that I'm a civil, social Christian? Or does it show you that I'm passionate, that you put me in the crazy category? And Jesus said, truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. So 
What Jesus does in just a very, very short few words is he takes a man who's enamoured with his own wealth, deceived by his own righteousness. He puts him in his place and says, your wealth is your impediment. His disciple comes to him and says, what about us? We've left everything. And he said, you, my friend, eternal, eternal life is yours. Because you've made the distinction between the pressures that family put upon you and the demands that family put upon you and the demands and the commands of the kingdom. And this is why I called it this morning a severed love. You see, we're told to love our families, honour our mother and father as one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, we're loving our, our, our spouses, our children, our cousins, our nephews, our nieces, our brothers, our sisters. All of those relationships are a vital part of what it means to be human. And yet there has to be a severed love, which says, in spite of all that love for those people who I'm connected to, I have to have a love for the Lord that means that my love for my family doesn't influence or inform the other one. So when in your, in your middle age or retirement years you say, I'm going to go off and serve a mission overseas for two or three years, when your kids come to you and say, oh, I don't think you should do that. We just ran out of babysitters now. Now, who knows what their motives are? You say, no, no, but the call of God is stronger. Even though I love you, the call of God is stronger. Or, or when you as a young person are called to, to do something significant and a parent comes to you and says, I just don't think that's a good idea. You're in the same position. You say, look, mum, dad, I really love you, but I know this call of God on my life and I have to fulfil it. That's a severed love. It doesn't mean you're severed off, but you've separated the two. Some of you will remember David Pierce. He was here preaching on Sunday night. I was, I was out of town, unfortunately. It took me eight hours to drive from uh, <clears throat> Doubtless Bay, so I managed to have time after the service on Sunday night to have a, a cup of coffee with David and Jody, with Michaela, my wife. And we had a conversation a few years before when David was talking about uh, family, children and grandchildren. And David's 63. He's the, he's the trendiest 63-year-old you'd ever meet, eh? Hey? You know, he's got these, he just looks, looks really sharp. He's got these great dreads and um, just got heaps of energy. And we were chatting about this and how he has seen numbers of his peer group leave the mission field because children and grandchildren were placing greater demands. And I said to him, I said, look, it's all very well for your children to say, hey, the grandkids need to see more of you. And that puts pressure upon you as a grandparent. But I said, it works the other way around just as well. I said, your grandchildren need to see you serving the Lord, saying that your age is not an impediment, your age is not a barrier, saying that, passion and even being crazy for Jesus actually counts because this is what separated the rich young ruler from the disciples in this story. 
Jesus said to the disciples, you will inherit because you've left behind family and, fr- uh, family and children, mothers and fathers. You've created that place of that severed love. That means you love them, but you love God more, as opposed to the rich young ruler who, when faced with the reality of giving away all that he had, he knew that he'd be disappointing not only himself, but his family and all those who had put pressure on him to maintain the wealth in the fashion that he probably held it. And so we look at this severed love and we say the world is going to look at us and think we're crazy because our priorities are different. The accumulation of wealth is not our number one priority. And so from this starting place, often our motives are quite mixed. We don't always have this together. I think money, because it's spoken of so much in Scripture, reminds us that it's one of the biggest battlegrounds where that civil war goes on inside your head. Isn't that true? It's always true. Yeah. And so that's why we say, where this civil war is, where this battle is, is being fought, that's a place where we can say it's okay not to be okay, but it's not okay to stay there. Because like the rich young ruler, he missed out on eternal things. Did he miss out on eternal life? Well, there's not enough of the story to tell you. But what we do know is that the apostle Peter and the disciples were affirmed because they had created in their own head and heart a space for God and a space for family. And God and his lordship was superior over all the other values and challenges that the family would bring. That for us, my friends, is a huge challenge, isn't it, in today's society? Because of the pressures that we feel. And it might even sound absolutely blasphemous to talk about family as getting second place behind God. But done in the right order, everybody wins. Everybody wins. Let's stand for prayer. Father, we thank you that as we read Scripture, we find ourselves again and again reflected in these stories, these very divine stories that start off at quite a human level. Regular people with regular fears, regular concerns, regular temptations. They're in Scripture and they're very much within us. Within that civil war of our own mind of who's the boss? Who's Lord? Help us, God, to create that severed love which says to friends and family, I care for you deeply, deeply, deeply. But my love for God and the call upon my life that He has placed comes first. But out of fulfilling that call, I get to love you even better. I get to love you even more because I am more fulfilled, I am more complete in who Christ called me to be. So Father, help us in the wrestling match of our heart and mind. Help us to have victory in this area of civil war. As we identify the areas where we're not okay, help us to be open with one another, share our convictions, share our stories, share our challenges with others so that we might be drawn into a greater understanding of what it is that you want and how we could even help others in this same battle. Lord, we thank you for Simon Peter who asked that simple question, who could be saved? Surely we 
have done enough. And Peter affirmed him. And he said, yes, you have. You will receive in this life and in the life to come many times more that which you have left behind. And so God, we thank you for that promise. We thank you for your tremendous grace through which we inherit eternal life. We ask this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.